You're listening to HIV News and Views, a podcast series from thebody.com. For a transcript of this podcast and for more interviews and first-person stories, visit us on the web. Welcome. This is Bonnie Goldman, Editorial Director of thebody.com. On December 1st, the U.S. updated its guidelines for the use of HIV medications in adults and adolescents with HIV. We are pleased to have with us Dr. David Wall to provide a summary of the most important changes. Dr. Wall is not only one of the top clinicians and researchers in the United States, he's also a guidelines panel member. Dr. Wall, thank you so much for joining us. Can you walk us through what you think are the most critical updates to the revised guidelines? The first thing is that people should understand what these guidelines are. I'm speaking as a person who is on the guideline committee, but I'm going to be speaking to you from my own personal experience and not as a representative of the guidelines themselves. This guideline that we're talking about is the Department of Health and Human Services guideline. They get a bunch of experts together from all walks of life. Some are doctors who treat patients, some are doctors who do research, some are nurses, some are lawyers, community members, all sorts of people, pharmacists, etc. We sit and we think and we talk and meet and look at the data. What we try to do is make heads and tails out of lots of different data coming from all parts of the world about what is churning out to have the best evidence for what we should do in clinic. The guidelines that came out on December 1st, World AIDS Day, reflect basically what's gone on over the last year or so in the HIV treatment world. There are several important changes to the guidelines. One is the level of CD4 cell count, the level T cell count at which we start therapy has been a moving target, and that's reflected how good our drugs are and what data we have out there that indicates treating at a certain time point is better than not treating at a certain time point. We used to treat really early in HIV disease with CD4 accounts that were 500, but that was when we had very few medicines that worked. We basically had AZT. We didn't see studies that showed that there was much benefit of that because, well, AZT alone doesn't work very well. Then we had studies that showed starting at 200 and below probably is where you get the most bang for your buck, and so we started treating people 200 and below. Then newer therapies came out that were more potent, and we showed very clearly and very quickly, well, waiting to 200, that's not a good idea when you have really good therapies because you can get benefit even earlier. So it shifted over to 350 because that's the number between 200 and 500, right? More recently, there's been more data that's come out, largely from looking at large groups of people followed over time that indicate that there might be a benefit of starting therapy even earlier than 350. That is sort of the discussion you're going to see when people talk about these guidelines is that the shift has been to try to treat earlier, and we're seeing this in clinic. Oftentimes, guidelines will occur, and they'll make a recommendation, and then people follow them. Oftentimes, guidelines reflect what's already starting to happen in clinic because everyone reads the data, everyone reads the evidence. What we're seeing in these guidelines is a recommendation that under 350 T-cell count, no-brainer, people should start therapy. 350 to 500, it's recommended, in fact, in these guidelines that we should be giving people therapy at that CD4 cell count based upon the available data we have. There's some really good data. Over 500, there is discussion of how half the panel thought that was a really good idea and half the panel thought that really there wasn't enough data to support that, that the panel was evenly divided regarding starting therapy at above 500 versus waiting till under 500. 
this is a change, and I think that you will get more data over time that can help make this clearer. But we're seeing a real shift to starting therapy at a higher CD4 cell count above 350 here. Treating 330 to 500 is recommended here in these guidelines. So that's a big change. Before you go on to the other changes, what are the pros and cons? I know there was a whole chapter about some of the things like inflammation that have made this a convincing argument. The one thing we don't have that would maybe be extremely helpful here is a randomized study where you, by flip of a coin, take half the people and say, you with a CD4 cell count of over 500, you start therapy. You with a CD4 cell count over 500, you don't start therapy. And let's see how you guys do. Even with that study design, and there is a study like that underway in the very early stages, you still am not completely sure that who you selected is representative, but it's the best way we've got to determine whether or not one strategy is better than another. We don't have that yet. What we have are other things that kind of point the way to whether or not one way is better than another. There are studies that look at large groups of patients who started therapy at a high CD4 cell count versus a bunch of patients who didn't start therapy at a high CD4 cell count and showing that there may be some differences between the two groups, especially in that 350 to 500. And in one study, even above 500, where people who delayed starting therapy didn't do as well, whether we're talking about AIDS progression, meaning getting sicker, or even death. There's also a lot of data that are showing that people with HIV who have HIV that's not under control have more inflammation. Now, inflammation is a big, long word that just basically means swelling. It doesn't have to be like what happens when you hit your thumb with a hammer. That's inflammation. That's swelling. But there could be chemical inflammation where there's chemicals in your body that your body makes that say, whoa, there's an infection here, and we've got to fight it. T-cell, you do this. B-cell, you do that. Immune system, get revved up and fight this. In people without HIV, we know that being chronically in a state of inflammation is not good for your body. It's not good for your organs. It's not good for your heart. It's not good for your kidney. Inflammation over time wears down the body. If you have inflammation from HIV, the hypothesis is this is bad for you. Maybe one of the reasons why HIV therapy does such a good job in helping people even those at higher CD4 cell counts could be because it reduces inflammation by getting rid of virus as much as possible. And virus promotes inflammation. There's this vicious cycle that's broken if you can get rid of the virus as much as possible. But that's not conclusive. We don't have the studies that are going to make that a slam dunk that we know that we have to start therapy the minute someone's diagnosed, regardless of their CD4 cell count. We don't have that yet. So what you see here is a discussion of the various pros and cons, pro being We could prevent opportunistic infections. We could prevent all the things we always had. But also, maybe we're preventing inflammatory-related diseases. Maybe. Not a lot of data there that could say that that is exactly what happens, but there's enough data there to say that it's possible and and that things are pointing in that direction. The cons, well, they're the cons that everyone knows about. You've got to take therapy longer. There could be long-term toxicity that we don't know about. There's a cost of taking medicines. We used to think that these medicines were highly toxic until we did a study where we randomized people. This is the SMART study where we randomized people to take medicines and continue on their medicines who had high CD4 cell counts or stop their medicines, and the people who stopped medicines got sick, even at high CD4 cell counts. HIV therapies have their toxicity. HIV itself has its toxicity. HIV is a toxic virus with lots of side effects. HIV medicines can have some side effects. I think that the virus probably trumps what's going on with the medicines. But there may be a point where 
there's a more of a balance where if you start too early, the longer-term toxicities outweigh the benefits of therapy. We just don't know where that point is or if it even exists. That's what we have to see. People in this situation need to really have a long discussion and really think it through. There's no clear guidance if they have over 500 T-cells. Exactly. And I think over 500 is a real gray area. It used to be a gray area was over 350. I think the nice thing that we're seeing with some clarity here in these guidelines is 350 to 500, therapy is recommended. Over 500, this is becoming a target of investigation. This is an area where we're now more and more concerned. I think what we're saying is, basically, should HIV be an infection that we treat from the very beginning, like we treat other infections? There's not too many infections where you have it and the doctor says to you, we can treat it, we have medicines, but you know what? Let's wait until you get sicker. Let's wait until it gets worse. And then once there's some damage done, we'll repair that damage and treat you. We don't do that. Now we do that with HIV, and I'm being somewhat facetious here, but we do that with HIV, and we've done it for a long time, sometimes with good reason. Question is, is there still a good reason to do that? We're getting closer to understanding the answer to that question, but we don't have it yet. But at least now we're putting it within our sites that says this is a span of CD4 cells, 500 and above, where we have to find out is therapy justified or not. Here are the data points that say it is. Here's the concerns that say we should be careful. You see that balance between these two strong arguments played out in these guidelines. Is there a reason to start treatment, let's say your CD4 count is 600, just to preserve the 600? Because when it goes down to 500, maybe you won't be able to get it up to 600 again? Generally, we don't see that. Most people who have a CD4 cell count that's still above 200 or so can get a robust response. Maybe in some people who are older and patients who are in their 60s, 70s, we may not see as robust a response. But generally, if you have a 500 CD4 cell count, you can get it up. I think the converse of that is if you have a 600 CD4 cell count and you don't get treated, how long is it going to be before you start therapy anyhow? Are we talking about delaying therapy for 18 months, for 24 months? Then it comes, well, why not just do it now? I think that there's a lot of concerns here, a lot of discussion. We're in this gray zone of above 500 where we don't have the randomized data. We have these large cohorts, these large groups of patients, but there could be bias that's introduced in those cohorts that we can't tease apart. They're not as instructive as a nice randomized study. We're not going to have that for a while. In the meantime, we have to make decisions for ourselves. Of course, it requires a conversation. When I see patients in the clinic who have a higher CD4 cell count, we talk about this, and it depends. Do you have the wherewithal? Can we start this? Are you having any symptoms that could be related to HIV that this might help? What's your viral load? If you have a really, really high viral load, I might be more excited about starting you than if you have a really kind of low viral load. These are all the features that go into this discussion. It's a very personalized decision. David, can I put you on the spot? What would you do? If I had HIV infection, I would want to start therapy early. I'd want to start therapy soon after I was diagnosed. For all the reasons you mentioned. Yeah. I can't tell you that the data are conclusive, as I've said many times already, but I think there's dots that you could connect personally. It's a fair question. I would want myself to start therapy earlier rather than later. I think I could take therapy every day. I don't think it'd be easy for me, but I think I could do it. And I think I could have myself monitored to make sure that I'm not suffering side effects. And if I am, to make modifications as needed. But I think I could handle it. It takes a commitment, but I think I would do it. I don't think I'd want the virus doing stuff to me for all that time before I started at, let's say, 350. Are there people who should always start HIV treatment? Yeah, there are some 
people who, almost regardless of what their CD4 cell count, should start HIV therapy. We know that people who have hepatitis B could benefit from medicines that treat hepatitis B. Some of those medicines are also HIV medicines, and it can get complicated. Many of the patients who have hepatitis B should really be on HIV therapy at the same time. When I talk about hepatitis B, I don't mean you've been exposed in the past. I mean the virus is actively in your blood doing bad stuff to you. Hepatitis B is another thing that we can treat with the same medicines as we treat with HIV. That could be done really nicely and get both viruses undetectable. People who have kidney disease, most kidney disease in people with HIV is related to HIV itself. We know that when you start HIV therapy and have kidney disease, your kidney function gets better. I would say, as the guidelines indicate, both the Department of Health and Human Service guidelines and guidelines that are issued by another committee, the International AIDS Society USA, everyone agrees you should be treated if you have kidney disease and you're HIV infected. Women who are pregnant, it makes sense, regardless of CD4 cell count, should start therapy to prevent transmission of the virus to the baby. Other people would indicate in the IAS USA guidelines, this other committee recommends that people who have cardiovascular disease we think about treating because inflammation is bad for the heart. So that's another sort of softer indication, but people have talked about that as well. Anyone who has symptoms, and, and importantly, you may have a high CD4 cell count, but you may have symptoms related to HIV, recurrent infections, an opportunistic infection, thrush, diarrhea. I treat those people. The guidelines are very clear about that. What about things like neuropathy? There's less data, and here's the question. People who have neurological problems related to HIV, whether it be neuropathy or cognitive dysfunction, there's theoretically a basis for why therapy may help those individuals, but we don't have a lot of data that says that if you get on therapy, things improve. I think that we don't know as much about those as we do these other things where we have data. We just discussed when to start. What about what to start with? What to start is really just trying to decide among the different options you have available. How do you craft a menu of therapies that look good? And the key thing here is that this is all based upon data of groups of people. So there could be 800 people in a study, and we're looking at what drug combination does better in getting the viral load down, what drug combination does better as far as being tolerable. These are comparative studies, large groups of people. For you, it may be different. It may be that you come in and you've got a specific circumstance where the therapy that looks great in a study would be a really, really bad idea for you. There's a list of drugs. Some of them are considered preferred based upon the science. These drugs look like they should work the best and be better tolerated. But for other people, here's these other drugs. They may have come in second, but for you, they may be the better option. It really helps guide clinicians and individuals living with HIV about what the studies show, which looks good, which looks worse. Remember, worse nowadays it means only 70% of people got undetectable at two years instead of 78%. Generally, these things really work well. Individual preference, co-payments, formulation, pill count, side effects, etc., have a lot to do with how people get on therapy or not. Trust your doctor, your nurse, your PA. These are people who are advising you. Do your own research and see what makes sense. The guidelines are not generally written for individual patients, but there's plenty of stuff on thebody.com that's written for everyone to understand all about the different therapies and their pluses and minuses. I noticed Ecentris was added and Kalitra was taken away. Right. Kalitra is still a good therapy for many people, and it's a popular drug. It is now considered an alternative because there are a couple of studies that showed that compared to other 
boosted PIs, drugs of the same class, it came in second overall. It still did a good job, but it came in second. That's a consideration for many people. For people who are on Kaletra, that doesn't mean you have to rush out and change it. Quite the contrary. Most clinicians, I think, will keep people on Kaletra who are doing well on Kaletra. It's a matter of what we think about when we're starting someone with therapy now. We have to talk about it. There's advantages and disadvantages to every single combination, and this is one of the things we have to talk about with our individual patients. Yeah, it's no longer listed as a quote-unquote preferred, but it's an alternative. For any individual patient, an alternative could be preferred, like I said before. Icentris, this is also called raltegravir. It's a drug in a new class. There was a nice comparative study against Sestiva. It looked just as good. I think this is another option for people. It's something that's starting to be embraced. It's a twice-a-day medicine compared to a tripla, which is a once-a-day medicine. How much inroad is it going to make? For some people, it's a good idea, especially people who can't take Sestiva because of the dreams and stuff like that, and who can't take Norvir, which is what you use for the boosted PIs. It's another option, and you can't say it can't be preferred because in a head-to-head trial, it did just as good as one of the preferred regimens. Many of us think that this is a really good option for people starting on therapy. Is there any sense that a new drug added to a list is better than the older drugs? I mean, some people just think, oh, it's new, it must be better. There's been rumors that it's stronger. If someone's on another regimen, should they switch to the newest one? I think what you're getting at is, do you want to be the first to get the new thing, or you tried and true and you wait and you're a late adopter rather than an early adopter? Clinicians are different that way. Some want to be the first one on the block to use a new drug. Others want the drug to be out there for a while. So it's very individual. I think people should use these guidelines. They're really well thought out. They're evidence-based. I think you have to have a really good reason not to follow these guidelines. If you're going to come up with some other combination, there has to be a fantastically compelling reason to do that. There are those reasons, but these are really good guidelines. I think the combinations listed here are what people should start. I noticed the other new thing in the guidelines was a mention about positive prevention. Could you talk about that? Sure. I think that the guidelines are reflecting uh, increasingly important awareness that HIV therapy is also part and parcel of HIV prevention. We know that when people take HIV medicine, they become somewhat less infectious, probably not completely, absolutely 100% non-infectious. We know that there is virus in the general secretions that may be there even though we can't detect virus in the blood and that these two compartments can be different. We also know that if someone gets a little STD, like chlamydia or gonorrhea, that their viral load in the semen or vaginal secretions can spike, even if their blood viral load is undetectable. There's a lot that is talked about here about trying to marry HIV therapy to behavioral interventions. The idea is we can talk to people about how to be safe and not transmit the virus to others, and there's good ways that we can do that, creative ways. Some of them, most of them, involve using a condom, but there's other ways too. Maybe also thinking about HIV therapy and using that to augment the behavioral strategies that exist. But too many clinics don't use them. More and more clinics have to think about how to integrate behavioral interventions that get people to be safe rather than just telling people they should use condoms. Telling people they should use condoms just doesn't work. We've spent a lot of time and money finding out about that. But there are ways to motivate people to be safe, to do things that would decrease tremendously the risk of transmitting their virus to somebody else. Part of that is getting tested. 
people often don't know that they're HIV infected who are transmitting the virus to others. Getting people tested is a big deal. And everyone listening to this should, of course, if you've not been tested before, should get tested and should try to be deputized and find someone else who hasn't been tested and get them tested. Everyone should be tested. Could you explain the whole philosophy of treatment as prevention? What, what does that mean? The idea here is, is that if you can find people who are HIV infected, who, let's say, don't know that they're HIV infected, find out that they are infected, and then offer them treatment, you've done a couple of things. One is you made a person aware that they have this infectious disease. That alone may impact their behavior. Two, there's an opportunity now for you to introduce behavioral interventions, such as counseling, motivational techniques, all sorts of things that people have worked on that may be appropriate for your particular type of person that may motivate you not to do things that might spread the virus to others. Third, we can get you on HIV therapy. We know that HIV therapy seems to reduce people's infectiousness. We don't know if it does it absolutely, but it does seem to decrease the risk of infection to others to some degree. Again, that degree is not completely spelled out. Um, these are opportunities. About 25-28% of people with HIV in our country don't know that they're infected. There are some estimates that maybe those people are responsible for half of the transmissions. You've got to get people, find out if they're positive, so testing has to be expanded. Those who are HIV positive, treating them so that we get their health better and also reduce their risk of transmitting it to others, apply behavioral interventions that are appropriate, and then continue to follow those people, keep those people on therapy, keep those people in clinic, keep them working on their behavioral interventions, behavioral techniques that can help people understand best ways, best strategies, best reminders, whatever it will take to keep people from transmitting the virus to others. There are effective ways of doing that, and all of us know that. That's the whole concept in, in a nutshell, is find, test, treat, retain, and to care, and maybe we can help reduce transmission in this country, which seems to be on the upswing. Great. Well, thank you so much. I'm afraid we've come to the end of our time. Thank you, Dr. Thank Wall. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. Thank you for listening to HIV News and Views. For more podcasts, be sure to visit us online at www.thebody.com.